The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I think once we're getting to a place where we're having this pretty watered-down, simplistic debate that you hear people say, well, I think someone like Kanye's you know, account should be deleted. I think it should be frozen but not deleted. I think it, he should be able to say whatever he wants. You can defend any of those positions if you want to, but they're all 25 steps down the causal chain too late. Like what went wrong is so far up the chain of events that it's like there's no good options left. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. Hey, everyone. My guest today is The New Yorker's Andrew Morantz. So unfortunately, we need to talk about Kanye West. Not just because he's gone on an anti-Semitic bender that may end with him buying the alt-right social media app Parler, but because the story of his radicalization is also a story about the internet, which is why our guest today is an expert in online extremism. A few years ago, Andrew embedded himself with alt-right trolls and interviewed social media founders for his book Antisocial. Last week, he applied the lessons he learned from that book to Kanye West, writing a piece for The New Yorker titled Kanye West's Parlor Games. In it, he argues that Kanye's path from George Bush doesn't care about black people to white lives matter and anti-Semitism isn't all that unfamiliar. The only difference is the size of West's platform. He also argues that the free speech discourse peddled by West and his new platform-owning pals, Elon Musk and Donald Trump, isn't all that deep or well thought out. Quote, being in favor of free speech is the content moderation equivalent of being in favor of peace. It sounds nice. But as a template for making policy, it's worse than meaningless. Andrew and I talked about all of that and more. What successful content moderation would actually look like, what a Kanye West-owned parlor would actually mean, and what the splintering of the right-wing media ecosystem into new echo chambers means for our discourse and our politics. As always, if you have comments, questions, or episode ideas, please email us at offline at crooked.com, and please rate, review, and share the show. Here's Andrew Morantz. Andrew Morantz, welcome to Offline. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, we were trying to decide between doing an episode on Taylor Swift fandom or one on Kanye West buying parlor. And I saw your New Yorker piece on the latter mm. uh, and figured it would be great to talk to someone who's been covering online extremism and radicalization for quite a while now. So I mean, so that's I, I, also, I also wrote a profile of Jack Antonoff, so we can cover both. If you oh, want. <laughs> okay, well, maybe you, maybe you come back on next week. We'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get that one done. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'd like to start by talking about Kanye's journey. And we should say that he uh, legally goes by yay now. Uh, but let's talk about his journey from being the guy who said uh, George Bush doesn't care about black people during Katrina in 2005 to... Um, wearing a White Lives Matter t-shirt and spouting off anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, uh, as he's been doing over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, he's always been a bit of a jackass, to quote my former boss. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there are mental health issues at play here. But how much of this do you think is 
unique to Kanye uh, and how much of it feels like a familiar path? It's definitely familiar. You know, even if it were just Kanye, it might still be worth writing about because he's such a singular figure, but it's obviously not just him. And, you know, in these recent weeks, he was really sort of hitting levels of third rail trolley contrarianism that uh, he hasn't hit before that I was like, I kind of feel like I know exactly what's coming next. I've just seen this movie enough times in my reporting that it was like, we're about to get to the JQ is what they, they used to call it in the alt-right, which is the Jewish question. We're like two steps away from it's the Jews fault. And then I was like, oh, it's like even more on the nose than I thought it was going to be. Usually it's like globalist, rootless cosmopolitans. This is just like it's the Jews. So uh, it, it got there fast. Why do you think that all these radicalization journeys end up uh, with anti-Semitism as, 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 a, as a result, as end up with the JQ? Yeah, it's a very good question. It's a, you know, tale as old as time. I mean, we should we should dig in on that. But just just to make sure I answer your first question, like he's obviously singular and he's not every other radicalized, you know, lonely teenager in their bedroom. He's Kanye West. But there were hallmarks of it that were so familiar that and and and, and to the to the original part of your question, like the through line from George Bush doesn't care about black people to let's go deaf country on the Jews is a sad one and almost tragic in many ways. But one of the simplest ways to put it is just that if you are so addicted to the video game of button pushing and contrarianism and playing the thrill ride roulette wheel of engagement, then regardless of the substance of what you're saying, you're gonna just seek out those feelings, those dopamine hits. And, you know, it's almost the toddler thing of, you know, any attention is good attention. Because you've covered so many people who've sort of gone down this path, um, many of whom far less famous than Kanye, Mm -hmm. can you talk about some of the typical stops along the trail from uh, bored internet surfing to alt-right troll. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I also, before I did a whole sort of deep dive into the ways that the internet was making politics crazy, I did um, a piece way back when for The New Yorker about um, this thing called Truman Show Delusion, which is Hmm. all these people who had seen The Truman Show and they said, oh, that's me. And actually... I mean, incidentally, Kanye has said similar things to this in the past that and and what the sort of basis of the piece was, was, you know, schizophrenia and bipolar and all these various illnesses obviously were not invented in the 20th century, but they take different forms depending on the era they're in. If you had um, delusions during the Cold War, they might sort of flow into the shape of the Soviets are spying on me. If it was during the Napoleonic Wars, it would be, you know, Napoleon is spying on me, whatever it might be. I'm a prophet, you know, sent to, to Jerusalem. So and now it's I'm in the Truman Show. And I think there's a similar thing here where there's a form and content thing. Um, there's the the form of it, which has hallmarks that are sort of older than prehistory. And then there's content that gets poured into it. And that content just these days comes from the internet. And I think the part of it that is different, there's, there are several parts that are different, but the most obvious one that's relevant here is that 
it's so engagement-based. I mean, it's not just that information flows more quickly and at a broader scale, it's that it's incentivized differently. And so the third rail stuff is not just, you're not only judging that based on the reaction of Mike Myers standing next to you in a television studio when you say something, you're judging it based on literal numbers in a, in a video game on your screen, based on, you know, when you tweet something, how many numbers can you rack up? And so it obviously doesn't always go down a dark path. Um, and there's some dispute about how often it does sort of quantifiably empirically go down that path. But what I saw again and again in the reporting was, okay, you might start out with um, a kind of uh, just asking questions, kind of how far can we push, let's say libertarianism, like often it would be someone like, you know, the, the reporting you see about Blake Masters or someone being on a college uh, libertarian message board and then going, well, if we push libertarianism to its really logical conclusion, then maybe we don't need a state at all. All we need is freedom of association and freedom of contract. And if we have true freedom of association, then maybe we don't need things like the Civil Rights Act. And maybe, you know, we can just have housing compacts where it's only white people. And then you're sort of off to the races. As to the JQ specifically, this is a whole thing we could get into and in the kind of internal logic of, I mean, to be honest, I was not expecting, I'm Jewish, I, I sort of grew up um, where the debate in my family, like a lot of families was, why doesn't Ann Esther just chill out about anti-Semitism? Like it's not as big a deal as it used to be. And that was kind of the generational divide where I would be arguing with my elders, like, yes, anti-Semitism is a real thing, but the Jews have become white in America. And this is kind of the familiar contours of the debate. So I was, I was very surprised when I started going down, I expected it to be conspiracy theories about Syrian immigrants. I expected it to be transphobia. I didn't expect like you guys have not updated since the protocols of the elders of Zion. Really? We're, we're doing yeah. this still. It was, but it, but it came up again and again especially in the last several years, right? Like in the, in the Trump era, in this like era of radicalization, um, you're right. There's like, there are new others for the right to attack, mm -hmm. but yet they've also gone back to, uh, and especially some of these online trolls, they've gone back to anti-Semitism again and again, which is uh, very frightening. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't mean that people of color or trans right. people or misogyny, it all kind of gets woven into one, fabric you know so it's not that there's a hierarchy where one is replacing the other it's actually kind of a conspiracy theory of its own which is because the jews control everything what they're doing and this is gets to all this sort of soros and the border stuff is that they are trying to bring in these menacing black and brown hordes because they want to break the white majority and the only way they can do that is by importing these hordes and that was when i started to go okay i kind of get all the Jews will not replace us stuff that you heard in Charlottesville. Right. Like it sort of made it make sense a little bit. You've written that a lot of these alt-right characters aren't fundamentally political figures. They're meta media insurgents. Uh, what do you mean by that? I think when I was spending a lot of time with them, because the, the origin of the project was not um, writing like a polemic about whether these people were good or bad. I, I think I just sort of took it for granted that what they were doing was bad. The question was, how were they doing it and what were they good at? Um, and the reason I was interested in them was not because I wanted to explore whether I liked their political ideas. It was because I wanted to see them do the thing they were good at. And the thing they were good at was media. So 
they weren't, you know, particularly deep readers of Strauss or Nietzsche or something like that. What they were good at was um, being ahead of the curve in terms of figuring out how social media was built to work and exploiting it to its fullest extent. And there, there was a lot of, um, you know, at the time, this, you know, internet cycles move fast. So it feels like a long time ago, but around, you know, the 2016 and even up to the 2020 election, there was a lot of um, talk about hacking and Russian hackers and Russian trolls and how social media was being misused. And and my sort of contention that I that I kept coming up against was they're not misusing it. They're, they're using it the way it was designed to be used. A lot of these people, they weren't breaking any rules of social media. They weren't breaking any laws, certainly. They were just doing the thing that the algorithms incentivized you to do. And they were just using it for things that I... <laughs> in my humble opinion, as a citizen considered to be anti-democratic and dangerous, but there's nothing in the rule book of Facebook or Twitter that says your content has to be true or good for the world or make it so that, you know, Miami won't be underwater in 50 years because of global warming. Like it's content neutral. They're just good at uh, pushing the buttons way better than um, anyone else was really at the time. I think it's so interesting because it's, you're right. Like these these people don't necessarily have a very uh, well-formed political philosophy, mm-hmm. but it does seem like they all share a certain attitude, which is like very anti-institutionalist to the point of let's just break everything. Let's fuck things up. Let's get attention for ourselves. Right. I mean, this is a Trump thing, too. Right. Like everyone tries to oh, is this is this a new kind of fascism? Does Trump have this ideology? And it's like, well, he doesn't necessarily need to have a cohesive ideology to be incredibly dangerous to democracy. And I do think that what unites a lot of these alt-right figures who are very sort of, you know, they have different views, come from different places, different class status, right, is that they all have this sort of attitude and personality trait of like, I just want to tear shit down. Mm -hmm. I mean, two things on that. One is I agree with you. And I don't think that should be taken as a reason to discount the seriousness of it because you know i mean the the actual fascists didn't have much of a coherent i mean mussolini contradicted himself about his ideology pretty frequently it didn't make it any less menacing so you know you you have this often with things that are like fascism or different kinds of authoritarianism there's a sense in which they're kind of obviously comical or kitschy or campy or hypocritical. Um, and yet none of that dilutes the actual power that they can hold in people's imagination or in their politics. In fact, it sometimes makes it more powerful and influential. Totally. <laughs> right? Like if it's not this sort of scary philosophy and and seems like it's Hitler-esque, and all, if it just feels like it's funny or hypocritical or it's ironic, it's detached, right? Like it can make it seem, I think, more appealing to some people. Definitely. And and I mean, one, you know, I don't, I don't have to tell you this, one big thing in politics is just where the energy is, where the momentum is, where the wind is blowing. And it's very hard to beat that kind of, you know, punk rocky energy. I mean, just totally being agnostic about the content. Again, just talking about what it feels like, the momentum, the excitement. There is something really exciting about let's just burn all this shit to the ground. And, you know, it doesn't even really have an intrinsically left or right valence. If every election is in some degree a change election, 
what's more changey than let's burn it all to the ground? I mean, it's not productive by definition, but it is, it, it's hard to outcool that message. And then it always put me in the position of feeling like, well, I'm just necessarily going to have to sit here and be the pearl clutching square, right? Because I'm like, could we just think about why we're burning it down for just a set or just like make sure there's a fire extinguisher after we burn it down or some, does anyone have a plan? And that's just never the cool position to take ever. At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Our professionals believe in the value of collaboration and the power of technology. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference, driving growth and value for our clients. KPMG, make the difference. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Obviously, the thing that makes Kanye quite different than your typical alt-right troll is that he's incredibly famous and wealthy. How do you think that affects both how he got here and what kind of impact his transformation will have or is already having? Mm-hmm. It, it it does make it more dangerous in the sense that um, same with Donald Trump. If you start off from a position of high name recognition and high access to the levers of attention, and if we sort of accept, as I think your listeners basically would, that attention is everything or close to everything in this particular moment of political economy, then um, then yeah, it, the the more you start out with, the more you have a first mover advantage. Like I, I I will I will say just my experience, you know, as just a Jewish person listening to Kanye's rants is not everyone's, but my basic feeling on it from from that angle is I don't feel that he is issuing specific actionable threats. I don't feel like he is you know threatening physical violence, but I just think it's generally a pretty bad signal in a canary in the coal mine kind of way when people start talking about the Jews and we've sort of seen where that leads. And it increases the difficulty on both sides, right? The the difficulty of how to deal with it when an influential person is leading people down a really dangerous path. And also the difficulty from the side of the gatekeeper content moderator side, if you're a social media company of knowing what to do for the same reason that it was apparently really hard for platforms to kick Trump off when he was president. 
there's a similar, you know, obviously not as um, well-defined thing, but there's a similar thing with the celebrity economy where it's just harder for platforms to kick off huge celebrities. And there's also a kind of related third thing, which is Kanye either is or was a great artist. I mean, the reason this is so sad for me and, you know, everyone I know is that he's like an incredibly important artist. And so it sort of gets into a little bit of an existential question of what is the point of social media or what, what are they doing in terms of content moderation? But one would think intuitively that if there's a great artist who has gone off the rails in some way, it makes it harder to shut them down than if it's just some random person who has no other contribution to society. I totally agree. And I think the reason it's harder to shut them down is the same reason that, you know, Donald Trump's magic, whatever you want to call it, I don't think is easily transferable to a Ron DeSantis. Like Donald Trump was famous to most of the country because of the Celebrity Apprentice before he was president. And I think same thing with Kanye West. You have someone that famous who that many people love his music and not everyone is paying as close attention to the latest controversy as you and I probably are and a lot of people listening. And so it becomes trickier and more dangerous, I think, to have someone like that spouting off anti-Semitic theories, even if, like you said, he's not calling for uh, actionable violence or anything like that yet. Although I noticed, you know, already uh, there was a headline like the Holocaust Museum of L.A. has been flooded with anti-Semitic messages after they offered Kanye West a a private tour and he turned them down. And now they're just like flooded with anti-Semitism. So it's clearly like the trolls out there and the anti-Semites out there are like taking cues from here. And then, you know, we saw there was the Nazis like unfurled a, a, a banner saying Kanye was right over the 405 here in L.A. last weekend. So it's definitely like people do take their cues from this shit, I guess. And, and there's also a, a semi-related thing, which is I sort of eventually reached the conclusion the longer I hung around these people that there is no easy sort of skeleton key to get you out of the trap that a professional troll can set for you. There's just no good way out because a good troll, and I mean, it's almost like diminishing to call this a troll, but it has the same mechanic, which is like, either you ignore it, in which case you try to starve it of oxygen. And we we went through this a million times with Trump, right? You, You either starve it of oxygen, in which case you seem like you have no rebuke, no recourse. You're just sort of silent on it and thereby implicitly, I guess, taking the high road, but it makes it seem like you have no good answer to it, or you're somehow condoning it or complicit in it, or you respond to it in any way. And that's, there's no good way to respond to it. And so in this case, there's a kind of content moderation version of that, which is either you keep letting someone say, let's DEFCON the Jews, which doesn't seem like a great option, or you don't let him say that. And then immediately the predictable response, which I did in fact, then immediately see is, oh, see, that proves him right. You see who really has power in this society, you know, which plays right into the conspiracy theory. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like, how do you get out of that? Because I thought it was a very important point that by shutting him down or by taking down the post or by kicking someone off a platform, that just feeds the conspiracy theories and say, oh, we were right. This is this is exactly what we're saying. We must have something important to say. And that's why they want to shut us up. Yeah, you always hear that. If you're getting flack, you must be over the target. I mean, that's always kind of the the, the counter response. And, you know, I, I think, look, I didn't set out to make a set of like policy recommendations to Twitter's content moderators or something. I, I really, you know, I'm a narrative 
journalist and I just sort of watch as things unfold and try to put the patterns together. And so my main interest was just, can I watch you guys set the match and watch how you light the kindling? And I really got way more access to that than I thought I would. And so that was, but from seeing that, I did sort of start to think through, okay, what would I do if I were on the other side of this? And I, I, I think that one of the low hanging fruit conclusions is there's no such thing as absolutist content moderation of any kind, right? We're now mm -hmm. in a position where you have Elon Musk saying, I'm going to come in and buy Twitter and I'm just going to be a free speech absolutist. I think he even used that phrase to describe himself, which like, bro, you're not. I mean, it, there's no such thing as a free speech absolutist. There just isn't. You, yeah. uh, I mean, first of all, he definitely isn't because he's like trying to bribe people to not write about where his private plane goes and all kinds of stuff. So, but also on a larger <laughs> level, there's no such thing as free speech absolutism because you you always have to pick a thing that you're going to allow or not allow. When when Elon Musk takes over Twitter, he either will or won't allow doxing, or he either will or won't allow you know the easy out that that people often try to say is we'll allow anything that that is legal under U.S. law. No, you won't. <laughs> lots and lots of stuff is legal that it is not and should not be allowed on Twitter. And so there just is no easy out from this. And I think once we're getting to a place where we're having this pretty watered down, simplistic debate that you hear people say, well, I think someone like Kanye's you know, account should be deleted. I think it should be frozen, but not deleted. I think it, he should be able to say whatever he wants. You can defend any of those positions if you want to, but they're all 25 steps down the causal chain too late. Like what went wrong is so far up the chain of events that it's like there's no good options left. Yeah, I totally agree with your point that by the time you start debating content moderation, you're like you're already too far down the path. But then I like where does the conversation start? Is it that there's we're just not meant to be connected at this scale? Is there a version of these platforms where as opposed to, you know, having a, an army of people who are content moderating all day long and, and imposing their own value judgments on this? Like, is there an earlier version of these platforms that actually could work? Or is it just like, once you start connect everyone in the world with this technology, we're fucked and this is what's going to happen? Yeah. I mean, I'll probably, I imagine, give the answer that a lot of people would give. I mean, this is why I'm a narrative person and not a uh, policy person, because I often arrive to the same conclusions that, um, not always, but that, um, you know, I think that what accelerates this is um, the building the entire incentive structure around emotional engagement. So yeah. it's it's not necessarily intrinsic to scale, although scale makes everything hard. It's that when you make it so that there are literal numbers that show you what a high score is, and everyone knows that the way you get a high score is by increasing the level of divisiveness, outrage, you know, fear, all the things that we know, it's just really hard for most of us to avoid that incentive structure because it's designed to suck us in. So you will often hear from the, the tech people that it's just sort of a neutral emergent property of scale, but you know, they, they, they built it to incentivize this and it worked because they're good at what they do. One potential impact of Kanye's uh, alt-right awakening uh, could be his acquisition of the social media platform Parler uh, if the sale actually goes through. Uh, for listeners who, who don't spend their days scrolling through Parler, could you talk about what that platform is and like what's what it's like on there these days? What's going on with Parler these days? 
I would say it's not the most fun place to hang out. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, a lot of these places, basically, they look like Twitter. You know, Gab is like this. Truth Social, to the extent that it even is functional these days, is like this. If you've used something like Twitter before, you wouldn't go there and be like, what is this? How does this work? You know, it would just be yeah. like a tweet is called a parlay or something. It's called something different. You don't yeah. retweet it. You retruth it or whatever. But right. it's basically a clone. And it's hard to see how that is a long term business model. Like we're just going to do this thing. But for our tribe has never been a transformative business model. It might be enough to sustain itself because these are very low overhead businesses, but it's not going to be, you know, the next world eating, you know, innovation. This is part of the intrinsic business argument for why someone like Elon Musk cannot be in practice a free speech absolutist, because when you try that, it turns into 4chan or 8chan or Gab, it turns into a place where the people who felt stifled by not being allowed to say I hate the Jews on the last platform are going to come and congregate at your platform. And, you know, again, none of this, it's like, you can't have very clean sort of Rawlsian political philosophy rules for any of this stuff, because it doesn't, it's, it's just not that kind of thing. It's not a delineated, you know, formalist thing. It's an emergent social thing. And so I, I sort of think of it in my mind as being like hosting a party and there's no rule that says that you can't just host a bunch of people at your party that were kicked out of the last party for saying a bunch of really gross, disgusting shit. But like chances are just think through your mind about like how that party's going to go, you know, and that's basically <laughs> what you have. Yeah, I, I don't think people understand or enough people understand that the only difference between Twitter and 8chan is a whole bunch of content moderation policies that were put in place that Elon Musk now says he probably wants to get rid of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't think it will immediately become that because you do have this kind of first mover, you know, you're right. starting from a place and it's going to take a long time in relative terms for it to evolve. But you you can just imagine anyone who's been to a large gathering of people, you can imagine, okay, let's say you start out the party and you set a vibe that's like, we're going to have a lot of 15 year old boys and we're going to let them say and do whatever they want. And it's going to be kind of like musty and like dingy and <laughs> everyone's allowed, everyone's invited to the party, but a lot of people are going to walk in and take one look at it and go like, not for me. And then back out. And if you right. don't have a party where everyone feels welcome, you don't have a functional social network. It's a great point because forget about like the morality of it, right? It's just like, that's not a good business model. On that note, can you figure out like why Kanye would want to buy Parler? Like his pal Trump has Truth Social Elon now has Twitter. Like, aren't there enough rich assholes out there who will like let him on their platform? <laughs> yeah, I, I think part of it is that he wants to be a mogul or perceived as a mogul like those people. Uh, and yeah. he, I think, thinks, especially Elon, I think he has a little bit of a, you know, sort of sibling rivalry slash adoration thing. But also, you know, I think a lot of these things are are even in the business world, they're social. Like he's friends with Candace Owens. Her husband runs Parlor. I'm sure they had a meeting and they said, this would be so cool and you'll advance the flourishing of human civilization. And he said, okay, <laughs> let's do it. You know, he, he's, he makes pretty impulsive decisions, you know. Guys, it's been a rough year. 
going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Elon tweeted a, a meme of like him and Trump and Kanye and owning all their social networks together. Like, what do you make of this alliance between the, the three of them who could own these three very Twitter like platforms? Look, it, it's always, I think, good business messaging to say I'm on a principled mission. And I think probably if you buy Parler, you you do think you're on a principled mission because it's not like a blue chip investment. But Free speech is very good branding. And I think it's a problem for the left and center left broadly conceived that the perception is that the free speech side of the culture war is the right of center side. I think that's not good for anyone, left or right. And I think it's not necessarily true when you like dig into it and look at, you know, people's actual nuanced beliefs. But that clearly has become the messaging deficit. And I can kind of see where the wrong turns sort of happened because, you know, saying provocative, edgy things like, you know, I don't think trans people should have rights and I want to go death country on the Jews. When that gets framed as a free speech debate, which I think is totally disingenuous and misleading. And then the reactionary forces in, in America are the ones saying, yeah, we love free speech as a kind of fig leaf to say the reactionary shit they want to say. That's bad in many ways, but one of the ways in which it's bad is that then by the nature of negative partisanship and and polarization and stuff, then it's like you have Democrats being like, we don't love free speech. Like, that's just never a good look for anyone. And I, I, I feel even in my own writing, I feel that tension where it should go without saying. And yet I still say it again and again. I love free speech. I think it's super important. I never want the government coming in and imposing any restrictions on any speech. Like, And yet I then try to go on to make more nuanced arguments about how what this or that racist is doing is not actually a bedrock free speech principle. And actually, the First Amendment doesn't come into play here because these are private companies. And actually, this isn't even about speech because this is about, you know, so I try to nuance it and I try to say the tech platforms are just using free speech as a fig leaf to juice their stock prices. Which, which is just obvious when you look at Mark Zuckerberg giving some big keynote address about free speech at Georgetown University. He hasn't even done the reading like he, he hasn't even he doesn't even know what he's talking about. But no matter how many caveats you give or no matter how much you try to sort of nuance it to some people, you come out looking like you're saying the people who love free speech are over here and I'm over here. And that's just not a good look. Yeah, I think the, the real challenge is you don't want to be in a position where you say like, our ears should not hear these dangerous ideas Mm -hmm. or these awful statements because Mm -hmm. this is a country where everyone gets to spout off their really horrible ideas in in their hateful rhetoric, even if if they want to, right? Mm -hmm. Now, just because you have a right to say hateful, horrible shit doesn't mean you have a right to then like 
reach millions of people <laughs> with that speech. It doesn't mean that we won't try to ostracize you, that we won't try to marginalize you, that we won't try to like boycott your, you know, uh, if you're if you're a business or like, you know, Adidas, if they want, they can drop Kanye as they did because mm-hmm. like, that, you know, there's no there's no right to be on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. And so you 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 do see this. I, I, I hope that people are at least conversant with that at this point. I feel like we spent sort of the first I do think yeah three or four years of Trump kind of making that distinction and I think now people get okay if Kanye West wants to go stand on a soapbox in you know Central Park and talk about the Jews like great I don't want the FBI to come and take him away nor do I want you know the TV cameras to come and amplify him saying that like I I right. think he should just stay on his soapbox and be marginalized now I don't know entirely where that marginalization should stop. I'm a little conflicted about should an odious person not be allowed to have a bank account? Should they not be allowed to stay in a hotel like that? That gets much dicier. But in terms of amplification of the speech itself, it's very tricky, but it's not a First Amendment issue. No. I mean, speaking of the marginalization, like the right wing media ecosystem does seem to be splintering into smaller echo chambers like Parler and Truth Social both because people like Kanye and Trump and, and various alt-right figures are getting kicked off platforms like Twitter and Instagram, and also because they're choosing to self-segregate. Do you have thoughts on the political repercussions of this trend? Like, are there any unintended consequences you think we should be aware of now that all of these alt-right figures are sort of going into these spaces where they're not seen as much by the rest of us? Yeah, well, again, there is kind of a no good scenarios thing here. That's just a lesser of two evils. Most of the research I've seen does suggest that when you fragment and sort of quarantine and make people go away, it was actually the word quarantine was used in terms of Reddit content moderation in my life way before it was used in terms of COVID. So they were talking about the metaphorical quarantining of different groups that had violated their rules. And it does seem to work. It doesn't go to zero, but it seems like the threats and the hate speech and the violent uh, rhetoric does go down because there's just a less of a safety and numbers thing. Um, hmm. But it doesn't make it go away. It happens in the shadows. I've never really been sold on the idea that sunlight is the best disinfectant in all cases because it just doesn't seem to be, you know, look, we yeah. shot, we, we, we are shining a big spotlight on how much Kanye hates the Jews and it doesn't really seem to be helping, you know, so it's like not helping. Yeah. yeah. It's a trade off, but I think all things being equal, you got to have rules. When people violate the rules, you have to do something about it. Again, and you can see how this is not the punk rock position. This is like the school marm position. But I mean, it just is what it is. Like, I remember going to um, the InfoWars website and reading their terms of service. And they had dozens of rules. No one on this site shall use hateful language. No one shall make threats. There's rules everywhere, you know? That, like, that's, that's what living in a society is. <laughs> yeah, we live in a society, yeah. Exactly. You know, that's what you you live with other people. You make rules that govern yourself. Self-governing is that, right? Right, um, right. So uh, last week I talked to um, Anand Girdadis about his new book, The Persuaders, uh, and we touched on Hillary Clinton's deplorable comment, which you write a lot about in your book as well. Mm-hmm. You come to what I think is a pretty fair conclusion that a lot of these alt-right figures just aren't looking to have any kind of reasonable debate about politics. You know, they're just looking to burn it all down. If they can't be won over, do you think they can be marginalized again since they were marginalized at one point? I mean, have like, how do we have a functioning democracy that's filled with a bunch of people who, to quote the title of your book, 
were able to hijack the national conversation. Yeah. I mean, I'm intrigued by the thing that, you know, Anand is getting at in the persuaders that no one should be written off as permanently irredeemable. And I'm drawn to that just as a person. I mean, you know, my wife is a public defender. The 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 motto in that world is you're not the worst mistake you've ever made and we don't write you off permanently. And now it's hard to be, you know, perfectly equanimous and Christ-like, you know, in the face of people who you know, are not only doing shitty things, but show no sign of wanting to stop doing shitty things. Like that's, that's not an easy position to be in. And it's, it, you don't want to just naively to stay with the metaphor. You don't want to just always turn the other cheek. If people are being very clear that like, I'm, I have no intention of changing or trying to redeem myself, but nor do you want to write out that possibility. So I like the notion of, you know, deep canvassing and trying to meet people where they are. I think all that stuff shows promise it might not be the most immediately scalable thing but i think it you know you gotta you gotta start somewhere it's not my nature to want to punish our way out of a problem i'm just temperamentally more interested in carrots than sticks but it's really hard like you say the people that i spent time with they they're not looking for a path out and they'll tell you that so it's not like i want to you know do some kind of like asymmetrical hands tied behind the back like it, it, you got to listen to where people are at. And part of meeting people where they are is to say, okay, this, this person's not trying to have a good faith dialogue with me. And I do think the media can get really hoodwinked into making the blanket assumption that everybody is meeting them in good faith. When you get all these kind of manipulation campaigns and you see this, when there's a flood of tweets about something and then, and the, the media is very easily, convinced that like, oh, people are really mad about this thing, or people are really worked up about this thing, when it could be 200 people just deciding to drive that into the media's consciousness. I mean, this is another sense in which I, I guess what people would say is Twitter is not real life. But what it really is, is, is a kind of algorithmic manipulation, where you don't have to break any rules, you don't have to be at some anonymous, you know, foreign agent, you just have to coordinate with a few of your buddies and learn the rhythms of how to tweet in such a way that you can get something trending. And then once something is trending, every journalist sees it because Twitter is, you know, half journalists, and then you're off to the races. I mean, I saw them do this again and again and again. So when a system is that easily hijackable, and it's also the lifeblood of our contemporary information economy, it's just not a recipe for good outcomes. No. And I think in, in terms of persuasion, it's like those alt-right figures that you covered like maybe you don't want to spend uh, too much of your time trying to persuade them but i think we should realize that they are spending their time trying to persuade other people mm -hmm. and they're trying to bring people into the fold and those people that they're trying to persuade should be up for grabs for the rest yeah. of us <laughs> and also and also you can think about the root causes of why parts of the message are resonating so there are moments in history this being one of them where let's burn it all to the ground is particularly appealing. And mm -hmm. some of that is just because it feels energetic and cool, but there's also very substantive reasons why people feel all kinds of misery in terms of their not only economic lives, but also their sort of lingering bigotry, or but also because of their malaise and lack of being able to make meaning of their lives. I mean, there's all kinds of stews of reasons that vary individually. And so you can write off the content of the message, like you don't have to sit there being like, 
the Jews, like pro or con. You can bracket that, but you can say like, what part of this is resonating that isn't just people suck and they're irredeemable, right? What part of this is hitting a chord? And is there any way to hit that chord that is actually productive? And can can you hit that chord by saying, we're going to give you a good union job, uh, you know, yeah. uh, building a light rail or something? Yeah, it's yeah. And it's, it's probably you probably don't hit that with just uh, a list of policy proposals, nor uh, just a bunch of content moderation. There's got to be something deeper there that can actually pull people out of this, I think. Yeah. Andrew Morantz, thank you so much for joining Offline. This was fantastic. Appreciate it. Thank you. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick-Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos sound engineered the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Amelia Montooth, and Sandy Gerard for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Narmel Konian, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. If you've ever messaged a friend about a manager who won't stop texting after hours or a coworker who keeps posting weirdly suggestive Austin Powers gifts in Slack, you're not alone. On Crooked Media's newest podcast, Work Appropriate, author and host Anne Helen Peterson sets out to find solutions to these oddly specific yet completely universal listener-submitted questions. Whether you work in an office chair or a sixth-grade classroom, the problems may be limitless, but so are the solutions. Listen to the first episode of Work Appropriate now wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great, great show. Anne Helen Peterson is a fantastic writer, a fantastic host. So check it out for sure.